Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and it is National Marriage Week until February 14th. For more information, you can check out our sister site, foryourmarriage.org. And in honor of National Marriage Week, we are continuing with part two of our interview with J.P. DeGantz of Communio. For part one, be sure to check out episode 82. So you've gotten the people in the door. You've applied a lot of very sound outreach tactics to get these people here. And now they are within earshot to receive some kind of marriage enrichment. And I know the content can vary, but typically, what does that marriage enrichment look like? What do those classes cover? So we talk about 10 relationship skill areas that the academic research says are important to know and to practice. Okay, five of them are interpersonal, five are intrapersonal. When we look at content, we want to know from our vantage point, is the content skills-based, okay? This is really important for Catholics. I think this is where we're really deficient in the content arena frequently, okay? We think a great talk, if somebody talks to us about marriage and you get a, you know, a diocesan marriage encounter or a marriage symposium, I sometimes call it the baton death march of marriage. You just sort of sit there and experts talk at you (laughs) for a series of hours. The analogy that I would present is if I wanted to be really good at golf and I said, Andrew, I'm going to be really good at golf. So I'm going to go and hear this talk on golf. And then I'm going to watch the British Open. I'm going to watch the British Open and watch people play golf. It's unlikely to affect how well I golf, or if it does, it's not going to affect it very well. At the end of the day, I have to get out and have a coach and practice the skills to be a good golfer. And so the key for us is the content selected by father in the parish is that it has to give couples the opportunity to practice the skills of a healthy marriage. And those on the intrapersonal skill side, there's everything from appreciation skills, commitment skills, discernment skills, expectation management skills in our own life, self-control skills. Those are all intrapersonal. In the interpersonal area, it things like uh, communication skills, conflict resolution skills, emotional intimacy skills, uh, relationship management. How do you manage the uh, your ongoing relationship? Togetherness skills. How do you, in today's world, with a smartphone, and I'm holding my iPhone in my hand for the moment for personal effect here. I know struggle with, you know, making sure I'm, you know, checking my email too much or that sort of thing. And how am I practicing the habit of being together with my spouse, right? So when we work with the church on the outreach side and the ongoing engagement side, we want to make sure that they sprinkle in some simple skills exercises for all of those events so that there's some dosage of relationship skills happening, even in something that's 90% fun or 70% fun. And then once they get to the growth journey side, we want them to select that content that has the most amount of, of skills. There's some really great plug and play content that has that. There's some amazing facilitator led where you can go get certified. Leaders at a parish can get certified and lead retreats. And we help a, a parish think through what's right for them. Another item that we talk about in the book is 
a great relationship ministry has three big legs, vision, skills, and community. Okay, all three are really important. And we look at vision. Vision is the sound instruction on, on marriage and relationships. It's held up from the pulpit. It's preached on regularly. But we emphasize, and I emphasize it in the book, it's not just the instruction on marriage. It's the idea that in this church, everybody invests in their relationship. It's normal to go to a marriage class and invest in your relationship. If you've got a good car, you don't wait for smoke to come out of the hood to service it. You bring in change of fluids regularly. A, a Catholic priest knows the, the church requires him to say his divine office every day and to uh, celebrate the mass every day and to go at least once a year on a spiritual retreat. Canonically, it's required. Right. Okay, That's the need for married life, too, to be faithful in our vocation. Uh, that vision should be held up in the church. And the skills, that's how you, what I went through, those 10 skill areas right. to, to practice a healthy marriage. And then last is the community in the parish is the vision and the skills reinforced through a virtuous community of singles and couples who have this expectation about their relationships and they're investing in those, their relationships. When you hit all three of those, then you have a culture changing parish that can transform the culture around it through transformative marriages and relationships. Yeah, that sounds, as you're describing it, that sounds like a very hospitable ecosystem where you have a lot of positive reinforcement from the outside, making it okay for you to openly seek improvement in your own relationship, which I think is so hard, especially if you're like more and more people transitory and more likely to find yourself in a new parish and you don't see necessarily a lot of people caring about, say, improving in their marriage or keeping their marriage stable. And so it's hard for you to be the one as a newbie to say, you know, hey, I care about this. I want Jesus present in my marriage. Yeah. And think about this, Andrew. I ask this at every church when we go and speak. Before we even really get going, if a couple came to you at your parish and said, you know, me and my wife or me and my husband went to a class on marriage, what is the very first thing that comes to your mind about them? I would say waiting to get it over with. <laughs> that would be my first. Most people assume, when I ask that question at a parish, they assume they must be having problems. Mm, okay. What they assume. They say, somebody went to go do that, they must be having problems. That actually is one of the biggest, I tell, I tell folks, that is the biggest intellectual stumbling block to creating a culture of marriage in your, in your parish and in your community. The wrongheaded idea that the only people who work on their marriage are people who are having problems. And it creates this situation where people feel shame for going and working on their marriage. So you have to obliterate that. And we work with parishes on creating an entire strategic framework to overcome that so that it becomes normative where a majority of couples are regularly investing you know, eight hours or more a year in relationship education. And that's, we cite this in, in our book that, that a couple who gets at least an eight hour dosage a year in skills training has a dramatically higher level of relationship satisfaction and they're dramatically less likely to get divorced. And if we know that, why aren't we sharing that? Why aren't we, I mean, the academics know it as a, as a church, we're not really helping that to be manifested, right? At the individual parish level. Yeah, I guess we don't we don't look at going to the gym that way. We don't assume that if you're going to the gym, you must be a weakling. Yeah, no, that's right. So when it comes to Catholic parishes, is this something that parishes are already doing and just could do a little bit better or not doing at all? To rephrase, how many parishes are doing marriage enrichment? Okay, in our survey with the Barna Group, 
statistically representative survey of Catholic pastors, 18% of Catholic pastors said they were spending more than 0% of their parish budget on marriage and relationship ministry. So 82% said they were spending nothing. Okay. Then we look in, in the survey, uh, we, we found 24% of all Catholic parishes had some sort of subsidy marriage enrichment and relationship enrichment activities, even though only 18% were spending any meaningful money in that area. So a few parishes, in addition to those that were spending money, were doing some free volunteer stuff. Right. So this is actually one of the most exciting things to me, Andrew. The world has been at war on the family uh, right over the last 60 plus years. And while we as Catholics have had great doctrine on and instruction on marriage at uh, a global level, it hasn't really matriculated down to the individual parish level on a pastoral basis. So to me, that's a great opportunity, right? That marriage and the family is in full-scale retreat and the individual parish has not yet answered the bell, has not yet entered the fight in, in a tangible way. And I want to stress to anybody who's listening to this who thinks that, well, my diocese offers some stuff, okay? My, my diocese does this. At the end of the day, Nobody walks around and says, hey, I'm a member of the Diocese of Arlington. Hey, I'm a member of the Diocese of Orlando. The reality is we associate with the church at the individual parish level, and especially those who are not activist Catholics, it's very unlikely that you're going to get somebody who's not already an active Catholic to start engaging at some sort of diocesan level. And even if you do, What's the likelihood of them, that's the stickiness of that diocesan encounter where they actually all of a sudden become an, an active mass attending Catholic, right? right? Like that there isn't the stickiness in the systems and the relationships through diocesan wide activities. So I really encourage anybody working at a diocesan level, ultimately, if there's going to be transformation in marriage and relationship ministry, your task is to push it authentically into individual parishes and find those mission-oriented pastors who are willing to do that. I heard a director of family life tell me this, say, you know, all of our pastors already get this. They already get that marriage and the family is the most important thing. To which my point is, then there's complete cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> if they know it's the most foundational and important thing, we put money behind what we value. Yeah. That if, if we say it's the most important thing and we spend nothing on it, are we being coherent or are we being truthful? I would argue that there's a lack of coherence pastorally between what priests cognitively know. And I say this, you know, I have a brother who's a Catholic pastor. And, and so I, I, I certainly beat him up a bit about this. <laughs> to his great credit, he's, uh, his parish has largely adopted this framework and they're moving heavily towards a focus on, on strengthening relationships and marriages. But we need to allow what we know intellectually to transform how we behave pastorally. And I, and, and I think that's one of, uh, one of the things that folks who are working at the diocesan level can be really helpful in challenging their priests are, if what we know is that this is the most important, then how are we architecting our budget and our resources uh, to follow what we know? Right. And you haven't even gone into the cold, hard value proposition that this is for parish, because if they spend money on this, your studies have shown that 
because religious attendance increases, the collection also increases, and so the money comes back eventually. Which, if I were a parishioner who was a beneficiary of this, that I had gone from not attending and not donating to the collection at all, and I felt like my marriage was somehow in danger of becoming unstable, I would pay that money so that I could learn those skills and be open to that. that that's exactly right. You know, I had a pastor in Texas say this. He goes, you know, we already get this. When we go to Africa, and Catholics, we're, the, we're amazing missionaries. In Africa, the fastest growing religion of the last century has been Catholicism. And it's because our missionaries understand, they first, they don't walk into an area and start with instructing people with a program, okay? They first bring in and feed specific needs. This community doesn't have clean water, okay? They, we're going to dig a well. They don't have access to food. We're going to teach them better agricultural skills, okay? Then they create schools for education. The church answers needs, which then causes those who are receiving those benefits to say, why do you love me? Okay, I want to know why. And so then they will hear the gospel, okay? In the first world, we don't have the radical poverty that exists in Africa, okay? But we have a deep poverty in our relationships. There's a loneliness, there's new data on, uh, for instance, the loneliness of middle-aged moms, right? Uh, that recently is, is in the news right now. But there's a broad, wide-scale loneliness that exists in our culture. And when we feed that hunger, that need for authentic relationship and life-giving relationship, people wanna know why we love them. And they'll be open to hearing the gospel and the kerygma. So we frequently challenge pastors on this part. What are your on-ramps to grow the church? And right now, mass attendance is down anywhere between 30 and 50% around the country. Okay, I wanna just give everybody a newsflash. They're not coming back, okay? If you don't do something different, if you keep doing parish life as usual and expecting the parish to fill up again, uh, that's foolish. If you choose not to do anything different, okay, and continue life as usual, I'm telling you, you're a curator of a dying museum, okay? And that's not what the gospel is intended to be. We, in our work with, partner with Dr. Mark Regner at the University of Texas on a, a large survey uh, that we did in 2014 and 2018. And what we found was the single most shocking thing I had found in, in researching on this issue and the interplay and interrelationship between marriage and evangelization. We all know that millennials are less likely to go to church than baby boomers, right? That's not shocking. I'm not breaking anything, any news there. But what's shocking to me was that that difference vanishes in how frequently a millennial and a baby boomer goes to church. They're almost just as likely, the millennials almost just as likely to go to church each and every week as a baby boomer if I know one thing about both people. If they both grew up in a constantly married home, there is almost no difference between how frequently a baby boomer and a millennial goes to church each and every week. Ultimately, what it means is if the family structure of millennials and Gen Z looked just like the family structure of baby boomers, our parishes and churches would largely be filled. And so that is the, the piece of sociological dynamite that we need our pastors to understand because our evangelization needs to be informed by it. We need to feed and strengthen marriages and use healthy marriages and relationship as a means for pre-evangelization and evangelization through our churches so that folks will come and encounter a life in the parish for reasons that they feel like they need help with, okay, or they benefit from. 
and then we can have the relationships with them that we can share the gospel and share the charisma. Yeah, that sounds like a hugely consequential area. So I want to end on one last question. If you had to distill all of this down, I know there are a whole host of reasons why this is the case. But what do you think is the most common factor in all of this that keeps married couples together who would have otherwise split up? First, I want to say, we know that the marriage is preternatural. Natural marriage exists outside of the church. And then it's sacramental marriage is a gift to the church by Jesus Christ. Okay. So first I want to speak to there's, why is it that Hindus or Muslims can have a healthy marriage, right? Ultimately there's there. And then I'm going to go into the sacramental marriage as well here. So first on natural marriage, right? Ultimately setting and establishing shared expectations in a marriage is a huge factor that the academic research says, okay, when, when two people expect similar things in one another and are able then, how do you do that though? Okay. There has to be some communication on those expectations. Most, the most frequent areas of conflict in a marriage is that one person is is expecting X and the other the other is expecting Y. And nobody's not naturally and or necessarily at fault for those lack of shared expectations. And that might be any anything from sex to money to work, home responsibilities, uh, expectations on how we would spend time together, all of that, right? What came up in our research is what we call the fear of betrayal. Okay. And, and that is not just adultery, but actually betrayal in the sense of what I expected in my marriage. And so, so I want to held that out within the concept of both natural and sacramental marriages as the idea that helping couples establish shared expectations and maintaining them, which requires communication skills development. That's probably the most important natural area. Right. Because if I, if I go into it thinking you're going to make me supremely and existentially happy and 10 years down the road, I'm not feeling it, then I feel like I was sold a false bill of goods. Right. How often time, uh, do, do people listening to this podcast hear people say things, this is not at all what I signed up for. This is not at all yeah. what I expected. Yeah. Okay. This speaks to that. Okay. And it touches on on anything within our, our marriages, right? And then we go into, I won't go into sacramental marriages. My wife and I, we have eight kids. And so we use NFP which um, I jokingly, we jokingly say stands for no formal plan. Just kidding. It's not what it stands for. But the need to communicate regularly, right? Establishing shared expectations, for instance, in the areas of NFP is a huge blessing to us in our marriage, right? And that's also what the social science bears out. But I'll say we knew several friends, and I write about this in the book, who are NFP practicing Catholics who got divorced in recent years at our parish, big families of five or six kids. It's just, you know, really shocking. Okay, so then I would say in our sacramental marriages, in addition to investing in the skills, are we investing in our daily prayer life, both individually and together as a couple? I think this is a huge opportunity in the married life, right? And, and developing, you know, the habits of regular prayer together. Are we calling one another to prayer and, and, and helping each other to grow in our salvation, right? And our justification. And then, and then obviously reception of the sacraments regularly, right? You know, are we, and especially if COVID has gotten us out of habit of getting to weekly mass, are we, are we doing that, right? These, all of those, the church has a, a great and vast treasure in the sacraments and, and we need to be availing ourselves of those and then investing outside of that in our regular prayer life as, a, as couples. So I want to you know, combine the importance of the skills with the importance of growing in the virtues, right? Best way I think to grow in the virtues is 
in the theological virtues and the classical virtues is going to be through prayer and the habit of reception of the sacraments regularly. Great. Well, you've given me a lot to think about. I hope the listeners uh, feel the same way I do, because this does really seem like a massive fulcrum for the uh, future of the church in the U.S. So, JP, we will uh, be sure to have links to uh, your book, Endgame, and also to Communio's website, communio.org. So we'll have both of those in the uh, show notes. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. It was great to be with you. And we are back with Kara and her family to talk about family. Good to be here. We are talking about probably the greatest movie ever made, The Godfather Part 1, which is enjoying its 50th anniversary this year in March. It will have been 50 years since the movie came out based on the novel by Mario Puzo and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and serving as a cultural touchstone to Italian-Americans like me everywhere. I didn't really know this growing up, but this was the first mob movie that actually used (laughs) (laughs) Italian-Americans. There are plenty of Italian-American actors, and I cannot hide my bias for this movie, but it does have very well-renowned artistic merits, independent of however much I love it as a very dark-haired Italian. Though not Sicilian. We're not Sicilian, Cara, so we don't really count. So you're saying it's less likely that one of your family members has killed somebody. Yeah, let's go with that. Yep. We are here to talk about The Godfather and primarily not about killing people, but primarily about how it discusses family and the role of love in family life and the extent to which it is outwardly suggested, but maybe not inwardly practiced. What this reminded me of a lot was my big fat Greek wedding. Hmm. So I had a good friend in high school who was Italian, not the mob, the like extremely close knit family, the like everybody's up in each other's business, 50 people around at all times. And if you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding, also completely about large families and sort of family dynamics. My Italian friend, she was like, I completely identify with this movie. This is what Italians are like. Apparently it's what Greeks are like. Now, my family is, we're just, you know, a mishmash of sort of American immigrants of different stripes, French, Canadian, and Hungarian and all kinds of stuff. So none of this kind of experience, but I think it's really interesting just how particular that experience is for these cultures, you know, the sort of Italians, the Greeks, I get the sense that perhaps there's like some stereotypes around like Polish grandmothers too, like coming over and you can't leave without eating a 10 course meal, even if you were just at your other aunt's house (laughs) who also served you a 10 course meal. For me, it was more, I recognize it as a, a trope and B, I think like a very real feature of these cultures in a beautiful way. I think like, obviously this is the mob. And so there's some nefarious things, but (laughs) the opening wedding scene is what, like 30 minutes long. Mm -hmm. But you really feel by the end of it, just how close this family is and the dynamics between them and the different roles that people hold within this family that makes it feel very relatable from the get-go, even though like none of us are in mob families. Right. None of us are in mob families. Yes, that's true. (laughs) I'm saying we had to talk about this movie on its 50th anniversary because it starts with a wedding and it ends with a baptism and it talks a little bit about the call to love. Although it's about characters turning away from the call to love primarily. (laughs) And when Michael, the main character played by Al Pacino, is introduced with his, at the time, girlfriend Kay, he's explaining his family to her. 
at a certain point after explaining a really violent episode in their history, he says, it's my family, Kay, it's not me. And at that point, you think, well, okay, he's really out on all of this. He just came back from fighting in World War II. He just pretty much wants to marry his girlfriend and not be too closely associated with his mob family. I think it's interesting, too, that like his family sort of wants him to get out in a way. You know, this is like a beautiful scene later on in the movie that uh, his father, Marlon Brando, is essentially like, you know, we had hopes and dreams for you. Like you went to an Ivy League school I and never then you'd this be a senator. You. And, yeah, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting sort of contrast to the fact that like everybody else is so entrenched in like the family business in a way that there's like no way out. But he also, the father recognizes that like there would be a better path and the better path would be to get out. I knew that Satana was going to have to go through all this. And I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. But when it was your time that, that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone, something. This wasn't enough time, Michael. It wasn't enough time. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. His kind of central arc in the movie is changing from being on that trajectory to at first caring about his family and his family's safety to running the family and living the kind of life that makes it impossible to love your family. By the time you get to the end, though, like if you're Michael, yeah, man, Carlo's got to go. Carlo has to go. Carlo's a dirtbag. Carlo bag. needed to go. <laughs> That's just justice. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I'm on board with this one, actually. That's what this movie's charm is so alluring in its depiction of the family with like its beautiful trappings, even though those are in stark contrast to the, the violence at the heart of it, to how much you are rooting for the violence to happen by the end of it because you're on Michael's side, even though you know that it's wrong. It's so true. <laughs> I have not seen Godfather 2. But I understand that there's like a reference to a mistress where Michael is making this reference, like in a sort of as a dig. So is it understood that like Michael is faithful? I don't think Michael is ever unfaithful. I think he he remains faithful in that sense to his wife. He makes a reference in the second movie, he makes a reference to Tom Hagen's mistress, Robert Duvall's character. Right. Which you don't really see in this movie. Yeah, it's only mentioned in the second movie, I think. Of course, Sonny, the oldest Mike brother, also very much cheating on his wife. I did think it was funny in the scene with the five families that they were, he was basically like, we peddle in things that the church doesn't allow. <laughs> it's like, well, also being like, everybody's got all the trappings of Catholicism, you know, the like the statues of the Virgin Mary and the crucifix above his hospital bed. And I was like, it was just really like a funny phrasing of, yeah, basically the things that the church <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think to them it functions as kind of like razzle-dazzle to let them do what they think they need to do. Mm. You know, I can't claim to represent the Italian experience. My family is very assimilated into American life culturally. But I think that might be kind of an Italian thing. Paying lip service with very outwardly visually appealing trappings of faith or, you know, beautiful tourism ads or whatever, while acknowledging that there is like a real ugly side that takes up a lot of our time and attention. I think 
somebody who's like more well-versed in European history could probably speak more on that than I could. But I think part of it has to do with living in a beautiful place that is also <laughs> kind of a crossroads for a lot of different world powers mm. where violence is sort of inevitable because especially in Sicily, so many different world powers have controlled it at one point or another. And there's so much bad blood, uh, which is a phrase they mm. actually use in this movie. The culture is just steeped in that bad blood just because of its location. So mm. I think there's a lot of that going on here. And that's this movie really demonstrates that in spades with the way it's filmed. Like in the, you know, that opening wedding scene is just bathed in sunlight and shadow, kind of interplaying in really interesting ways. Then it sort of changes and it's not so sepia toned by the end of it, but it uses kind of like Renaissance chiaroscuro, like light and darkness and the way like they, they light different characters' faces. I could go on and on and on about the way this movie is filmed and the symbolism of doorways, but I can't because we don't have that kind of time. It's not that kind of podcast. <laughs> no, it's not that kind of podcast, Kara. But the major thing is the way Michael sees family and how it changes over the course of the movie. This interplay between the outward trappings of the family and the inner ugly reality, there are indications that this is hollow. Like the wedding is beautiful. It's a perfect wedding reception. Frank Sinatra basically shows up halfway through. But then you see what the marriage is like and how bad a husband Carlo is to Connie. And then you look back at the wedding and you think, oh, geez, well, a lot of that money could have been maybe spent on counseling or a background check or something. <laughs> and then like you also see it in Michael's first uh, marriage to Apollonia, his first wife, who's pretty much at the mercy, of course, of forces the entire time she's around, um, either in a relationship with Michael where she really doesn't have the option of getting out of or suffering violence that was directed at him when she's killed by the car bomb. All of this, meanwhile, happens against the beautiful backdrop of Sicily. Does it seem as though Michael sort of goes through a transformation of having genuine love and it being sort of transformed into something more utilitarian? I only say this because, I mean, he, he gets into the family business because he's like so upset about what happened to his father. And then the fact that like he's, his father's being double crossed when he goes to see him in the hospital that like, you know, the police have cleared everybody out. So obviously there's going to be a hit. And like, that's a, it, like an extremely genuine and like almost noble instinct of his. And the fact that he wants to offer to assassinate Salazzo. The Turk. Yeah. So the fact that he he volunteers to assassinate Salazzo and the, the police captain almost feels noble. Like it's coming from a place of like genuine love for his father and sort of anger at the injustice. But by the end of the movie, it's all been transformed into business. And I think you see this from the other characters in that moment when he volunteers to assassinate Salazzo is that everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're like, this is emotional. You're taking this very personal, Mike. What do you think? This is the yeah. army where you shoot him from a mile away? Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is, is interesting. Like that comes up a lot. What's personal? What's like, what's just business in, in a way, like, because the family business is more business, like the family part of it is sort of skewed and sort of warped in a way that yeah. Michael sort of shows the way that like he gets warped by the idea of the family business from from being like something a little bit more noble. Yeah, I think that's a valid question because I guess there's two ways to look at like transformation. Either it's a real transformation where he genuinely goes from loving Kay to lying to Kay about killing his 
brother-in-law. Or you could say, well, he was always like that. He just didn't realize, he didn't have the self-knowledge to realize that he was always like that. And it took this experience to bring that out into the open. I think you could probably go either way there. But I think it's important to note that like when he was saying at the beginning, it's my family, Kay, it's not me. That was before his family was threatened. Yeah. It, and it took that to prompt that change, either in his self-understanding or in his real actual character. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point about the, like, was it always there? Because I think that's a maybe more traditional, my understanding view of like, this virtue and vice, right, is like we have certain underlying inclinations and like we work on virtue in order to put our sort of inclinations into the right place or like subsume them into good ends where like somebody who is really passionate that could be with some with you know virtue could be channeled into justice and without virtue can devolve into wrath I've heard literary historians kind of make the case that in the ancient world, they didn't really conceive of human beings as changing. You were always who you were. Mm. It was just whether it was manifest to anybody else, you know, at this point or that. And when you become an adult, who you always were becomes accessible to the world and you become a participant in society. But you don't change really from a child to an adult. You just mm. are recognizable now. And I think, you know, according to them, it either changes with the advent of Christianity or Augustine's confessions specifically like taken as a literary work where the interior moral drama of an individual is sort of articulated for the first time mm. where the stakes change where it's not so much you're always that way and then you're just publicly perceived as being that way it's that you start out as version A and then it's possible for you to stay A or not and become B which for Augustine that's his whole conversion story is which, you know, seems so obvious to us, but that was the first autobiography. People didn't used to think of themselves that way. Like, you know, Augustine's contribution to human history is saying that for the first time, really, in mm -hmm. the first person. That I used to be, <laughs> I used to be a lot of different things, and now I'm Christian. <laughs> so when it comes to Michael, I think I probably read it as the latter. I think that hospital scene in the middle where he's alone with his father, which is the first time he actually even converses with his father in the movie. You don't see them together before that. I think that's a very, very genuine moment. And that I think gets to the core of who he is at that point in the movie. And at that point, his attitude towards his girlfriend changes completely. Mm. You know, you see him a couple scenes before that where they're like coming out of the movie and they're talking about Ingrid Bergman and they're, you know, they're sort of flirting. And, they, you know, the Christmas music's playing in the background and everything's hunky-dory. And he's very warm towards her then. And he gets the news that his father's been shot. He has to leave her and go to the hospital. And when he comes back, he doesn't really see her after, you know, he does what he thinks he needs to do. He goes to Italy, meets somebody else and gets married. She gets killed. And then he comes back and he shows up when she's in New Hampshire. <laughs> I mean, actually, I was going to ask you, like, do you think it's that she's like holding a candle for him or that like she knows who what he is now? And it's like, I'm not going to refuse. So he comes back after going missing for years at this point and he looks completely different he's all mobbed up now with the fancy suit and she just goes along with it and gets in the car and marries him i, I she must have just really held a candle for him and there's something about greasy italian guys who are three inches shorter than she is that she just finds irresistible because i can't think of any other explanation for it <laughs>
I guess it's like, she must have, it's just so frustrating as a woman, like watching these scenes because she's like, she's been so thoroughly embarrassed. Like he won't say, I love you. He doesn't, he can't pass along the letters to her. You would think she would just be like, who do you think you are showing up here, laying into him a lot more. Instead, she's just like, Michael. Michael, tell that nice girl you love her. (laughs) It's a great character, by the way. That is my favorite character, I think, in all of this movie is Clemenza. And especially that scene where he's like making tomato sauce for like 30 guys and he's giving Michael dating advice. Hey, Mikey, why don't you tell that nice girl you love her? I love you with all of my heart. If I don't see you again soon, I'm going to die. <laughs> Come over here, kid. Learn something. You never know. You might have to cook for 20 guys someday. Love Clemenza. Yeah, he's so good. He gets it. He he understands the call to love. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I also really appreciated the line when they're in Sicily. Basically, this more traditional hey! view of women that women are more dangerous than guns. <laughs> I mean, I prefer that view versus like women as sort of, you know, weak or need to be pushed aside. I think that's a that's a more romantic view of women. <laughs> I guess you just can't have romance, at least in an Italian setting, without like the threat of mortal danger. It's <laughs> probably true. All, the, all those Mediterranean cultures. Are, yeah. You know. He goes through this transformation halfway through the movie, which is outwardly marked by that bruise he gets on his face sort of cocoon that he goes into and he adopts what he thinks is love for his family we talked before in familiaris consortia like john paul ii talks about the essence and role of the family are in the final analysis specified by love we talked about that in um, coco in, in episode 80 but michael feels like he's doing the loving thing and he's i guess advancing their material interests and their safety by protecting them you know, and in, in the plot, like he has to assassinate these rival mob bosses in order to protect and especially to protect his father, who they're trying to assassinate. But by the end of the movie, it leads him to a place where he can't even love his family. And I think this movie signifies in, in kind of a subtle way that loving someone doesn't always mean advancing their material interests. It doesn't mean family above all else. And I think they are saying something sort of akin to what Pope Francis talks about in Amoris Laetitia 18. And he's citing the Gospel of Luke here, where he's saying, Jesus, at 12 years of age, at the finding of the temple, he tells the media he has a greater mission to accomplish apart from his earthly family. And in this way, he shows the need for other deeper bonds, even within the family. And then later in the Gospel of Luke, my mother and my brethren are those who hear the word of God and do it. So the foundation of the family can't just be biological relations. It has to be built on hearing and doing the word of God. And I think this is totally lost on Michael, even in the baptism scene. You know, while he's hearing the words and renouncing Satan and all his empty promises outwardly, he's not doing it with his heart. Because at that at that moment, he is ordering the assassination of every rival mob boss. Like one of the most classic scenes in all of movie history. But the reason that it's not actually love, even though he feels like it's love, objectively it can't be. Because after that, he has to talk to his wife about it. And especially about having Carlo killed right after that. The father of the baby whose godfather he just became. He has two choices with Kay, his wife. Either be honest with her and say, yes, I murdered Carlo, or I ordered him to be murdered. And to bring her into that world of violence, which would either endanger her or drag her right down with him. Or lie to her completely and keep her insulated from the world of violence, which is what he chooses to do. And literally shutting her out of his life in the final shot of the movie when the door closes between them. Either way, because he's already chosen to have Carlo murdered, loving his wife is no longer a possibility. 
Doesn't matter what he does after that point. The transformation's complete. He can't love his family because he held them up above all else. He over-prioritized them, like C.S. Lewis talked about, rather than loving them for the limited good that they were. I think that was a good segue. You brought this up before um, when we were talking earlier, Good Bread, that it's very much like the point that C.S. Lewis is making in The Great Divorce about the way that we can hold things that are good in the wrong place and where those become idols that rather than being an outpouring of God's love or a virtue, they sort of become the object themselves. And therefore like you're missing the point. I mean, I think we've talked about a few times, like the woman who wanted her son so badly that that when she's there and they're like, well, your, your son is waiting for you in heaven. If you can just like, let him go. And she couldn't. And so it's, you know, that, that idea of having a disordered placement of family or, you know, of any, of anything that should be a good, um, can be twisted. Yeah. And I guess that's the difference between the Godfather movies and the Fast and the Furious movies is that they're both about family, but one of them points out the problems with being only about family and the other one thinks it's radical. Can't say I've ever seen a Fast and Furious movie, but uh, you know, you let me know if that's going to be the next podcast episode. Oh, we might be waiting a long time for that one. <laughs> I don't know if it fits in with the narrative at all, but I did think that the Apollonia thing was another, you know, sentimentality. Like, I see this beautiful woman. I'm going to get married to her. Oh yeah, that that's true. That's another love at love at first sight, or the thunderbolt, as they call it. They don't even exchange words. Like Michael sees her doesn't say anything they go their separate ways he meets up with her father later and offers to marry her without even having seen her a second time is she a terrible person to talk to i mean they show a lot of different marriages it seems as though the don loves the his wife that's true so so sunny is cheating on his wife tom is cheating on his wife fredo's not getting married anytime soon because he's promiscuous uh yeah carlo is abusing his wife and also cheating on her but Vito, the godfather seems to be a good husband at least insofar as the way he treats his wife for the reasons we've already talked about and the way he lives the rest of his life he's not a good husband because that always inevitably impacts your family relationships but they seem to love each other that's sort of like a juxtaposition about the don throughout it he's this very you know magnanimous and like i'm uh, doing favors for you (laughs) He's like, we're not, we're not murderers. But then you have Michael telling Kay the story downstairs of them, like holding the gun to the guy's head for yeah Johnny Fontaine's yeah. career. So it's just kind of interesting. Like he has this sense of morality that's just twisted. Right. But it's like sort of virtuous in a weird way. Yeah. They, they have a code. Yeah. There's a code. There's, there's some honor to him. In ways that like the next generation doesn't really seem to have honor. And that's that's another part of it that seems to be so attractive to the viewer is the sort of code. As sort of hypocritical as it is, still very appealing. Right, because I guess if we we're going to tease it out, the kind of killing they do isn't murder because the victims are not innocent. The victims are rival mafia people who would just as soon kill them. Therefore, in their mind, self-defense, I guess. Maybe. Or like outside of outside of the world of... Oh, we're not, we're not like, you know, hitmen for hire. <laughs> right. Except in that one example you were talking about with the, the band leader who they were going to threaten to kill if he didn't sign the contract. <laughs> like that guy, like, the band leader, the band leader wasn't going to kill anybody. 
They weren't defending anybody <laughs> to, by killing the band leader. Well, I think that wraps us up. Kara's family is uh, is calling her to uh, live out the call to love. <laughs> Very loudly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll let you go. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help this podcast grow, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to tell your friends and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.